So he uses their interest in the stars, their knowledge of the stars to somehow communicate to them that this event has happened and you need to come and see this. You see how God does that? What a fascinating thing that God meets people where they are and he uses all kinds of things in people's lives and people's thinking and people's culture, all kinds of things in our experiences to draw us unto the Lord. There's a story of, a, of an older gentleman who one day picked up the phone and called his adult son and said to his son, you know, son, I've got some really bad news for you. This is probably going to come as a great shock to you, but your mother and I are getting divorced. We just are done with this. We're tired of it. We're just getting a divorce. This came as a total shock to the son who had no idea, didn't see this coming at all, to which he answered his father, this can't be. You and mom have always had a wonderful relationship. How is it that you're now getting divorced? We're just done. We're tired of it. I'm tired of the woman. It's been 40 years. That's long enough. The son replied to say, you can't do that, dad. Just don't do anything until I get there. I'm going to come. We'll all sit down and we'll talk this thing through. Just don't do anything rash. All right. Well, you better call your sister and let her know about this. So the dad hung up. The son called his sister and says, you're not going to believe this, but dad says that he and mom are getting a divorce. The same sort of reaction. I can't believe that. They've always had a wonderful marriage. That's what he says. They just are tired of each other. They're getting a divorce. So the daughter picks up the phone and says, dad, don't do anything rash. We're coming. The four of us will just sit down as a family and we'll just talk this thing through. It's nothing that we can't talk through. All right, go ahead and come on. So then the father hangs up the phone, turns to the wife and says, well, they're coming for Christmas. And we don't have to pay for a thing. So that's a rather unique way of getting the family to come over for a Christmas visit. But God had a far more unique way of arranging for a Christmas visit. And that's what we'll turn our thoughts to this morning. We'll turn our thoughts to the visit from what we often refer to as the wise men. The first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 2. So in Matthew chapter 2, what we come up against is this picture of these wise men that show up on our Christmas cards and our nativity sets, which really, I would say, is probably the main way that most Americans learn their theology about the nativity of Christ. We learn our theology mostly through greeting cards and nativity sets and Hallmark Christmas movies. Sometimes there can be some helpfulness in some of that, but a lot of times there can be some confusion in a lot of that. And so I hate to be the one to burst a lot of nativity set bubbles this morning. But in order to really grasp the message of the passage before us, we're just going to have to, to face the reality that all of your nativity sets are very much wrong. There's lots of errors in them. And there's lots of errors in all the Christmas images that we often hold so dear but in order to see the truth and really the power of the truth of God's message, we need to do a little bit of work this morning and dispel some of those false understandings. And by doing so, we're going to see a truly powerful message that is far more powerful than any Hallmark movie representation could have been. Now, as we land here in chapter two of Matthew's gospel, what we always need to do, at least take a moment to do, is just to understand how the author got us to this point. We can open ourselves up to lots of problems if we just drop into a passage without understanding what the author has done up until this point. So if we were working our way systematically through Matthew's gospel, 
One thing that I would say is I would summarize it this way, that Matthew has spent chapter one telling us that Jesus is deserving of royal honor. He has taken us through the genealogy. He's taken us through the virgin birth of the Christ. And he has taken us through the dreams and the message that the angel brought to Joseph. And by doing all of that, he's shown us that Christ is worthy of royal recognition and royal honor. Now, as he turns to chapter two, we're going to see that that honor is now brought to him. The royal recognition, which he deserves in chapter one, is brought to him in chapter two. So we'll begin not by reading the passage. It's familiar to all of us, but we'll just begin by working our way through the passage, beginning from verse one. From verse one, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So the first word of our passage, or the second word actually, is after, which gives us a clue that some time has passed since the birth of the Christ child. The nativity sets that you all have at home that show the wise men there on basically the night of the birth of the Christ or the shepherds are there and the wise men or the three kings are there and all of that appears to be taking place on the, simultaneously on the night of his birth. None of that happened. It didn't happen that way. The, the wise men did not visit on the day or on the night of his birth. Instead, Matthew immediately clues us in to the fact that some time has passed by saying, after the birth, these things happen. There's going to be a couple of other clues in the passage. I'll point them out as we go. But Matthew is clearly saying to us that some time has elapsed between the birth of the child and the events that he's now speaking of. So after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. So here we're introduced to the first character in the story, this character by the name of Herod the king, or we know of him as Herod the Great. It hasn't been too long in our study of Mark's gospel that we thought about Herod the Great and his children and that whole, that whole dysfunctional family. And so I don't want to go through all of the details of Herod the Great, but we do need, at least for our purposes today, to just remind ourselves and just revisit really quickly just what a nasty, violent, mean, low-down scoundrel was Herod the Great. So Herod the Great was the ruler of Judea. He was the ruler of Judea because his father, a man by the name of Antipater or Antipater, uh, you never really, sometimes with ancient words, you never really know what syllable to put the emphasis on, but Antipater or Antipater was his father. He was good friends with the Caesar, and the Caesar that he was good friends with was the Caesar that we know best, which would be Julius. He was good friends with Julius Caesar, and he ended up doing a big favor for Julius Caesar. Caesar, Julius Caesar, repaid him by giving him Judea to rule over, and then that passed down to his son, Herod the Great. Now, he also gave to Herod the Great the title King of the Jews. And Herod the Great loved that title. That title was precious to him. He thought more of that title than just about anything else. He wanted everyone to call him king of the Jews. That'll be important in our story as we work our way through it. So this man, Herod the Great, was a violent man. He was hated by everyone and he knew it. He was the one who murdered at least one of his wives and at least two of his children because he thought maybe they were scheming against him or he didn't like the way they looked at him or something of whatever nature. So he killed at least two of his children and at least one of his wives and he didn't really even care. Was, there was a saying that was going around at that time that it was safer to be Herod's pig than to be his child. 
That's how nasty and how mean and how violent the man was. He was also the one that as he was approaching death, which by the way, in our story, he is approaching death. He's in his 70s and very likely he's on his deathbed in our story. But as he's approaching death, he's the one who had all the leading nobles of Jerusalem incarcerated, locked up with strict instructions that the moment that he died, they would all be executed because he knew that nobody was going to mourn his death. In fact, they were going to celebrate his death, but he didn't want anyone celebrating his death. And so the way he resolved that was to say, therefore, we'll just kill thousands of the leading people of Jerusalem in order that there may be mourning on the day that I die. Now, fortunately, that order wasn't carried out after his death. But that was, that was the man. That was what he was all about. So the, the nastiness of this man, King Herod, is right up front and center because he's the first character that we're introduced to. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea. In the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So now we're introduced to the second set of characters in the story, the wise men. Some of your translations might say magi. So who were these wise men? And how do we get from wise men to magi or magi to wise men? And then where do the three kings come into that? So the word there is magoi in the Greek or magi. We would call it magi. And the reason that many of our translations will have wise men is because that's an attempt on behalf of the editors of our Bible to relate to us who the magi were, because it's a bit of a confusing thing to understand who the magi were. So the word magi or magoi is an untranslatable word, which is why some translations will just leave it as magi. The reason it's untranslatable is because it's a proper noun. And you know, as you know, proper nouns can't be translated. You can't say, you know, somebody can't ask you, what's, what's your name translated into Polish? You, you can't translate a name. It's untranslatable. So magi is the proper name of a tribe a tribe of people, an ancient tribe of people that lived in the Mesopotamian uh, area. Some people say that they are very, very ancient. Some scholars would trace their history back, all the way back to Abraham and Ur, uh, when he lived in Ur of the Chaldeans. So that word there might strike some familiarity with you. Uh, Ur of the Chaldeans, the Chaldeans from our story of Daniel, you might remember that as we've talked about in our story of Daniel, the Medes and the Persians, as well as the Chaldeans and the Babylonians and how all of them were tightly knit together with the Magi, with that tribe known of as the Magi. So that might ring some familiar notes to us, but they're, they're an ancient tribe of people that were known as the Magoi or the Magi. Now, before we begin talking about the Magi, let's first begin by understanding what the Magi were not, because there's a lot of things that are in our common vernacular today that had really very little or nothing to do with what the Magi actually were. So the wise men, oftentimes that's an effort to just say well, these, who these people were. They were wise men. But as we'll see as we go through that, that's actually an interpretation. To interpret that as being wise men, that's interpreting something about them that could be problematic. We'll try to avoid doing that. But when we think about these magi, there's, there's, three, there's really at least three things that come to mind that really needs to be put out of our thoughts. Number one is, first of all, there were not three of them. We often think of the three wise men or the three magi. And the reason we think of them as three is because of the number of the gifts, right? So there's three gifts. So there must have been three gift bearers. And we probably come up with that because that's just how we normally do things. You know, if you have a, 
an office Christmas party. Everybody brings one gift. So if there's three gifts, then there must have been three people bringing the gifts. But as we go through our story, what we're going to see is we don't know how many there were, but we can be virtually assured there weren't just three. We'll talk about that as we go along. Secondly, we know that they weren't kings. Kings has nothing to do with the story. They weren't kings at all. They're never referred to as kings. And I'm not sure where the title king got attached to them, but they weren't kings at all. And then thirdly, as we've already noticed, is they weren't present at the birth. So there's these magi that were present sometimes sometime after the birth. We don't know how many there were because it's in the plural. We know that it's more than one, but we don't know how many there were. Some have speculated that they were the descendants of the three sons of Noah, which would have been Ham, Shem, and Japheth. That came just purely out of thin air. I have no idea where that came from, but that's an ancient tradition that they were the three descendants or they were the descendants of the three sons of Noah. Also, it's tradition that they were these leaders or these kings or these wise men from three different parts of the world. Ethiopia, Tarsus, and Arabia is where they're said to be from. Again, just pure speculation, just plucking something out of the air. No biblical support whatsoever. No extra biblical support whatsoever. But supposedly they were from Ethiopia, Tarsus, and Arabia. Supposedly they were baptized by the Apostle Thomas. Again, where in the world that came from, I have no idea. But being from Ethiopia, Tarsus, and Arabia, has anybody, you have nativity sets at home? Does anybody have a painted nativity set? If you have a, a painted nativity set, then what are the skin tones of the three wise men? Well, there's always one that's brown, there's one that's black, and there's one that's light. Because supposedly they're from these three parts of the world. Again, just pure speculation. Uh, In the Middle Ages, it was decided that their names were Melchior, Balthazar, and Casper. Again, where that came from, somebody just plucked that out of thin air. Well, uh, actually, not out of thin air, but the explorer Marco Polo, you might remember him from high school history, remember Marco Polo? He supposedly discovered the town or the city that they originated from, that they originated their journey from, and the, the city that they returned to at the end of their journey and where they were buried. That took place in the 12th century that he supposedly discovered that, which probably meant that he was just the victim of a huckster. But nevertheless, he supposedly discovered the town that they came from and returned to and where they were buried. And you can guess what came next. When he supposedly discovered where they were buried or the town they were buried in, what happened soon after that was somebody discovered a grave. Somebody discovered three skulls that were supposedly the three skulls of the three wise men. Now, these were the three skulls of the wise men, supposedly, because when they were discovered, all three skulls still had the eyeballs intact in the sockets. And the eyeballs were fixated upon the direction of Jerusalem. You can just see this gets more and more ridiculous as we go. But these skulls were retrieved. They first ended up in the, uh, the Cathedral of St. Sophia in Constantinople. Then they made their way to Madrid. And now you can go see them if you happen to be in Germany. You can go to Cologne and visit the cathedral in Cologne. And you can see these three skulls that were supposedly the three skulls of the uh, Melchior, Beth, Beth, Cesar, and Casper. All of that is just an exercise in the ridiculousness, isn't it? All of that is just fabricated out of thin air 
And as humorous as it might be to just see how fanciful people's imaginations can become, it's important to remind ourselves that that is sin. That is sin. To add to what God has said, to import into what God has said, what is purely the imagination of man is nothing short of sin. So all of that, we put all of that aside. And let's now think carefully about what the Bible tells us that these men were who visited the Christ child because the actual people and their actual visit is far more interesting and far more spectacular than any of those made-up stories. So this group of people known as the Magi or the Magioi, it's the word that we, we get our word magic from this word. We get our word magistrate from this word. And we get those words from this because, uh, first of all, their association with sorcery and the occult, and secondly, their association with government and with governmental influence. And so we'll talk about both of those things. So they lived in, like I said, Mesopotamia, which would be, if they were alive today, that would be present-day Iran. They were a priestly tribe, a tribe of priests, of, her, of um, hereditary priest line, much like the Jewish priest line. And they, not only were they hereditary priests, but they were advisors to the rulers of their lands. Now, let's talk a little bit about their religion, because their religion is interesting. Their religion would later become known as what's, what's known as, as Zoroastrianism. Everybody, anybody ever heard of Zoroastrianism? It's a world religion, but it is, you probably never heard of it because it is the smallest world religion that's known. Other world religions like Hinduism, Confucianism, Buddhism, uh, Roman Catholics, Mormonism, they have far more adherents. But Zoroastrianism today is estimated to be around 110 or 120,000 followers of Zoroastrianism. So what this religion entails, and here's the important part, is it is a monotheistic religion, which makes it unusual in the ancient world because not many ancient religions were monotheistic. But the religion of the Magi was monotheistic. They believed in one God and they believed in an evil power that confronted him in this battle between the good God, the good deity, and the evil of the world. They uh, had many things about their religion that were similar to Judaism, such as they didn't touch dead bodies and different things like that. They didn't touch corpses. They worshipped fire, or they at least thought that they worshipped their God through fire. So there are a lot of commonalities between Judaism, which was much older than the faith of the Magi, and the faith of these Magi people, these, uh, these Zoroastrianists, or what they would later be known of as that. But one of the things that's really unique about them is that they were what we could really call today as, as modern-day scholars. They were lovers of knowledge. They were, in the true sense of the word, they were scientists. Now, when we use that word scientist today, what we want to think of is the modern day, well, I'll just use the word I want to use, garbage. The modern day garbage today that tells us that true science only deals with verifiable, observable facts. And that is nonsense. If you were to trace the history of, of civilized mankind throughout its history, you would see that the sciences have always been those pursuits of all knowledge. In fact, the word scientia, from the Latin where we get our word science, that word literally means knowledge. And so true classical science in the classical sense of the word has always been the pursuit of all knowledge. And of all the knowledge that's pursued, 
the greatest knowledge of all is the knowledge about why we're here and how do we get here and what does this all mean? And throughout most of human history, that was the highest science, the pursuit of the question of who are we? How did we arrive here? What is this world about? What's wrong with the world and what can fix the world? And so up until literally up until the, tw- the turn of the 20th century, the highest form of science was theology. It's only the modern age. And don't get me started on, on the modern um, the, the modern pridefulness that says, well, all ancient people were dumber than us and only us modern people are the true smart people. That's nonsense. For centuries and centuries and centuries, mankind considered the pursuit of knowledge to cover all fields, whether observable or unobservable. And the highest pursuit of knowledge was the pursuit of the highest questions in life. Why are we here and what does this life mean? And so they were true in the, in the sense of the word, they were true scientists. They were studiers of agriculture. They were studiers of math. In fact, they had a code. The name of their book of codes was called, and you're familiar with this, the law of the Medes and Persians. Anybody ever heard of that? You've heard of it because it's in your Old Testament. It shows up in Daniel 6 and it shows up again in Esther 1. The law of the Medes and Persians was the code book that the Magi wrote. And this code book contained all of their knowledge about agriculture and math and physics and mostly celestial bodies because they were enamored with celestial bodies. And this law of the Medes and Persians was the code book that shows up in our Old Testament a couple of times. Remember how it was binding upon Darius because it was the law of the Medes and Persians and Darius couldn't break it. And so Daniel had to be thrown into the lion's den because that's what the law of the Medes and Persians said. And so this law of the Medes and Persians was their binding code book. And it was the collection of all of their higher learning because they were truly the scholars of the ancient world. Their understanding of the celestial bodies surpassed all ancient understanding of celestial bodies and the movements of the stars and of the planets. Now, if you think that's some a small feat, just remind yourself that all this took place some, what, twelve or 1,500 years before the invention of the telescope. They could map out the movement of the stars and the planets 1,000 or more years before telescopes. So that took quite a bit of, of ingenuity, quite a bit of studying. But they, they were enamored by the celestial bodies. And so what they really were was like a combination of astronomer and astrologer. You probably know the difference between an astronomer and an astrologer. An astronomer is a scientist who studies celestial bodies and the properties that govern them and their, their movements. An astrologer is one who thinks that the movement of the celestial bodies impacts your life. And so think horoscopes, that kind of thing. That's what astrology is all about. Astrology is nonsense. Astronomy is a true science. But the Magi were sort of a combination of both. They studied the movement of the heavenly bodies and they believed that the movement of the heavenly bodies had something to do with life here on earth. It had something to do with history. They could foretell the future. Something about the movement of the stars and the planets told them about life here on earth, or at least so they believed. And so the thing to take away here is how their scholarly knowledge and their observing of the celestial bodies and how that was a mixture of true science and pagan theology. Their, their studying and their learning was, was interwoven with their pagan theology. But see how God uses that 
to strike an, an intense curiosity among them, and then God uses that to draw them to himself. Isn't that fascinating? This is one of the most fascinating stories in Scripture of how God uses all kinds of ways and means to strike a chord, if you will, in people's heart to draw them unto himself. So he uses their interest in the stars, their knowledge of the stars to somehow communicate to them that this event has happened and you need to come and see this. You see how God does that? What a fascinating thing that God meets people where they are and he uses all kinds of things in people's lives and people's thinking and people's culture, all kinds of things in our experiences to draw us unto the Lord. So he uses their higher learning to draw them unto the Christ child. As we said not too long ago, those who approach the Bible with a big brain will find the Bible very welcoming. But those who approach the Bible with a big head will find the Bible very unwelcoming. So these magi are apparently approaching God and approaching the scriptures, we'll see a little bit later, with a big brain, a brain that understands something about the movement of the stars and, and a lot of things about how this world works down here and this sort of thing. But this, were the, this was the Magi. They were an extremely influential group of people. In fact, their influence, as we said, dates all the way back as early as Abraham. And we still see their influence taking place as late as Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 13. You might remember in Acts chapter 8, somebody by the name of Simon Magus. Same word there, magus, magi. So somehow that, that man Simon had a connection with the magi. Maybe he was one of them. Or we find in Acts chapter 13, a man by the name of Elemas, the magician. And same word there, magi, magician. So somehow there's a connection there. So they were highly influential. They were a very, very learned. And so instead of wise men, it would be better to think of them as learned men, scholars of their day. 